Well, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn over to Galatians chapter 2, and we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, But by way of introduction, I want to tell you about a moment I had yesterday morning. I had a moment of panic. I was cooking for a family get-together yesterday morning. We had a Father's Day gathering a a little around lunch yesterday. And so I have two looming fears if I'm cooking for people. The first fear is that everyone gets sick after they eat the food they prepared. That's just not good, right? That's the first fear. The second fear is not having the food ready in time for everyone, and everyone is waiting, 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 waiting on me. And that's happened before. No, the first thing hasn't happened yet, but that's happened before. And yesterday morning, the second fear seemed to be on the brink of reality. I'd gotten up super early, and my, for me, super early, 4.30 a.m. is super early. That was an act of the Lord to get me out of the bed. And uh, it happened. I'm not a morning person. Have y'all ever noticed that morning person people will never let you forget that they're morning people? You ever notice that? I talk about it all the time. But anyway, I'm not one of those people. And, and so I'd gotten up super early, and I had the cook time just really, really tight. There was no margin for error. I had to be done cooking and we had to be on the road at 11 o'clock, no, 10 o'clock to be at lunch at 11 o'clock an hour away. So I needed five hours to cook. I had to have the food on at 5 a.m. I had to pull it off at 10 and jump in the car. And so as I was three hours into this cook time, three hours into it, 8 a.m., I'm checking the temperature of the meat that I was smoking, and I needed it to be at 150, 160 degrees. And when I stuck the thermometer into the meat, it was 60 degrees. That's not good. (laughs) That's three hours, and I'm not even halfway there, and I only got two hours left. I'm thinking of contingency plans in my head. I've already spent too much money on this, and now I'm going to have to go buy food that's been cooked by someone else, and surely won't be as good, by the way, and spend more money on it, or I'm going to have to go get hot dogs or, you know, one of those bags of crystals or something like that for everybody to eat. I walk inside, I set the thermometer on the counter, I went to the bedroom to grab something, and I came back through the kitchen, I happened to glance down at the thermometer, and it said 19 degrees. And I said, I know that's not right. It's not 19 degrees in here. It feels like 90 right now because I'm sweating because I'm worried about what's going on. And so I picked up the thermometer and I heard somebody say it, Celsius. (laughs) So I switched it over to Fahrenheit, reinserted it into the meat, 155. Thank you, thank you, thank you. (laughs) I can work with that. I can work with that. Now why am I spending time telling you this? If our standard of measurement is off, it will throw everything that we're doing off. Everything. If I'd have cooked that meat until it was 200 degrees Celsius, it'd have been bad news. (laughs) It wouldn't even have been worthy of beef jerky at that point. It'll throw everything off. Yet here we are as the church... And we recognize that as Christians have called scriptures the canon of scripture, it is the standard and rule by which we measure everything in life. That's what canon means. It's a standard by which we measure everything. And as we have been thinking about last week, as Pastor Ken uh, brought a great sermon on racial conversation and on racial reconciliation, why is it that this conversation is so difficult? 
Why is it that this conversation is so difficult? Jonathan Lehman wrote an article not too long ago on why is the race conversation so hard, and this is what he said. The conversation is so hard because it is deeply and inevitably a political one. By this, I mean it involves the structures that shape our relationships inside the American body politic, and these structures define our identities, our opportunities, in relation to one another. The conversation is so hard is because often when we're talking to one another, we are hearing one another through the grid of Republican, Democrat, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, and our favorite talk show host radio personalities or social media personalities. This is one reason why it's so hard. We quickly want to generalize and put one another into categories. Keywords, phrases, sloganeering, they're used to fire up the base and silence others. We talk at each other instead of talking to one another. Nuance and patient conversation has been traded in for tweets in the cancel culture. But the church should be markedly different. We should be a refreshing counterculture to the culture that we live within. The church should be completely different. First, the Bible is our standard by which we measure everything against. Where the Bible is clear, we are to be absolutely clear. We must call sin, sin, and we must address it when it's in the church. Second, as we seek the welfare of the city, as we just heard about there from Serve 2020 and was referenced even last week from Jeremiah 29, as we seek the welfare of our city, of our communities, we may disagree about how to address certain injustices. One may feel strongly about this public policy or this candidate and another and another. We may feel strongly, but here is where we need to exercise grace and be willing to have patient, nuanced conversations. Because often as Christians, we agree about what the Bible is clear about, right? We ought to. This is wrong. But we may disagree about how to address it in our public lives. But being clear is what we must do. And our aim in these sermons is to be absolutely clear where the Bible is clear. That's our aim. This church is a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Southern Baptist Convention is made up of cooperating churches that come along together and that we uh, work together mainly toward the Great Commission going forward to all nations. But the Southern Baptist Convention, you may know this, and I'll throw some of this on the slides. My PowerPoint is pretty meager this morning. Uh, You like that background? That's what happens when I can't steal one of Pastor Ken's backgrounds. And so I've been using his Genesis background, and uh, so I just picked a plain one. Um, But but here, 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 here we have it. As the Southern Baptist Convention, in 1995, our convention adopted a resolution on racism. And I want to read some excerpts from it. This was 25 years ago, 1995, that we adopted this. And too late, by the way, if you know our history from when we actually said this. We should have said it a lot sooner. The messengers of the sesquicentennial, that's fancy for the 150th, by the way, the sesquicentennial meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention assembled in Atlanta, Georgia, Georgia, June 20th through the 22nd, 1995, unwaveringly denounced racism in all its forms as deplorable sin. We lament and repudiate 
historic acts of evil, such as slavery, from which we continue to reap the bitter harvest, and we recognize that the racism which yet plagues our culture today is inextricably tied to the past. We apologize to all our African Americans, uh, all other African Americans for condoning and or perpetuating individual and systemic racism in our lifetime. And we genuinely repent of the racism of which we have been guilty, whether consciously or unconsciously. We commit ourselves to be doers of the word by pursuing racial reconciliation. Friends, this was in 1995 that we felt it was absolutely necessary to make a statement like this. Last week, Pastor Ken mentioned a statement from Tony Evans where he said that he encourages Pastor Tony Evans, his church, to righteously protest unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, we're Protestant. By the very nature of who we are, we were birthed out of protesting what is contrary to God's word. That's who we are. Every Sunday we stand and we make the most political statement that could ever be made. Jesus is Lord. There's no more political statement than that. We just read it from Psalm chapter 2. The nations rage against the Lord's anointed. Every Sunday we stand and we protest against our culture's false gospels of power, wealth, health, materialism, and more by proclaiming the one true gospel. We must speak clearly where the Bible speaks clearly, even on culturally hot-button issues such as abortion, marriage, and sexual ethics, and yes, racism, prejudice, and injustice. The Bible speaks clearly. We must speak clearly. Am I telling you that you should physically go to a protest? No. What I'm saying is we must not lose our prophetic voice in culture, speaking the truth in love. What do I mean by prophetic voice? What I mean is speaking truth to power. This is what the prophets did. This is what John the Baptist did, and he, it cost him his head as he spoke to Herod and said, that's wrong. Brothers and sisters, we must be willing to do it and to speak the truth in love. And that's our aim in these sermons to be clear where the Bible is clear. Last week, Pastor Ken offered a big picture overview, a systematic theology, if you will, of sin and racism and the answer to it, which is the gospel. This week, the goal is to focus on one specific passage that addresses the issue. And so that passage today is Galatians chapter 2. We're going to read in verse 11, and we'll end in verse 16 in just a moment. This passage before us calls us, I just want to be real clear, this passage calls us to make sure that our practice is in line with our proclamation. That our practice is in line with our proclamation. Let's hear from God's word. Galatians 2, 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves, Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is God's word. And may he give his blessing to the reading and the preaching of it. Let me offer you a quick outline here. What we see is a confrontation there in verses 11 through 14. And then in 15 through 16, we'll see the gospel. I think I've just thrown one slide. There it is, simple. There's an outline for you. I want us to notice three things under the confrontation. The fear of man, others stumble, and being out of line. And then last, we'll look at the gospel, that we are justified by faith. If we understand the book of Galatians, here's what we know. We know that Paul is coming and he's confronting a deviation from the gospel there in the churches that are in the Galatian area, to the churches of Galatia. And so as he's addressing this, what he makes clear in chapter 1 is that this is God's gospel. This is not man's gospel. It's not come from man. It has come from God and from God alone. He says even if someone else were to come and deviate from it, even an angel himself, let him be accursed and don't give ear to him that there is one gospel and that it does not change. And so here in chapter 2, he records in the first part what I believe to be the meeting that he has that's recorded there in Acts 11. I don't think this is the Jerusalem Council in the first part of chapter 2. I don't think that's happened yet in Acts 15. Uh, I think it's coming. I think had it already happened, this would have been a settled issue. And so he's addressing the the meeting he had there. And then here in chapter 11, I mean, beginning in verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul is going to address that not only is the gospel clear, but the gospel shows up in our life, that that, that it bears fruit in our lives, and that our lives should be in line with it is the the language that he's going to use in just a moment. And so what he does is he gives us an example of a confrontation that he had with Cephas, who is Peter. Look at verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. I mean, this is strong language. What we have is, we have two apostles, and there is, there is a confrontation here. There's a confrontation here because sin is involved. What is this confrontation about? Well, Paul is confronting Peter because he says he stands condemned. He stands condemned because his life is out of sync, is out of line with the gospel. That, that, it, that his life is not matching his proclamation. And so what we see is that he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned, verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So here we see that Peter was having table fellowship with the Gentiles, but this was prior to certain men coming in and his fear of man taking over. We'll come right back to that. So here's what we know. We can know from Acts that Peter has the vision right before Cornelius where the 
sheet is lowered from heaven and there are animals on it and every Mediterranean's favorite verse of the Bible is right there, kill and eat. That's what, that's what he's told, kill and eat. And so, so what is going on there is that, that he's being shown that these ceremonial laws that were there in the Old Testament that were showing for cleanliness, that we are to live holy lives and be clean, that, re, 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 that kept them, that restricted some of their food that they would actually eat. He was being shown that those laws had been fulfilled in Christ. Right? That these ceremonial laws had been fulfilled in Christ. This is clear in the Gospels in Mark chapter 7. He offers the same note. And so that this has been fulfilled in Christ, Peter is being shown that, that the gospel, in fact, in the book of Acts, is, in fact, going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's Acts 1.8, right? So a little bit of help with Acts is that what we're seeing is that as Acts progresses, we're actually seeing Acts 1.8 happen, right? So with Philip, it goes to where? To Samaria, if you know the tension between Jews and Samaritans, you, you understand the significance of this, of the gospel going there. And here in Acts 10, God's preparing Peter because he's going to send him to Cornelius, who's a Gentile. And what the Holy Spirit is saying is, yes, you are doing the right thing. You're on the right track. This is what's supposed to happen. The gospel is going to all nations. It's not just for the Jews. And so you'll see these amazing manifestations of the Holy Spirit at each stage of this happening because it's confirmation that they are being obedient and that God's plan is going forward. So here's, here's what we see. Peter has, has shown this vision. He sees there the, the conversion of Cornelius and his household and, and now he has been sharing table fellowship with Gentiles. He's no longer worried about being made unclean ceremonially by sharing the table with those who don't have the same dietary restrictions as him and don't share the same eating habits as him. Right? He understands this has been fulfilled in Christ. We'll come back to this in a moment. And so, if I don't forget, and so we, we see here that, that Peter has been doing this and he's right to do so. And then it says certain men came from James. Right? We can look to Acts 15.1 and we can uh, see some indication of what was probably happening here. In Acts 15.1 it says, But some men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And so they were adding to the gospel this need to be circumcised. Sorry, the, the Puritans would frown upon this, me being weak and needing water. <clears throat> So we see that, that, that they're saying that this needs to be added, and more than likely, these men coming from there and, and holding this, that we still need to retain some of these ceremonial laws as Christians, Peter is intimidated by that, and then he shows prejudice against those who are not like him culturally. Right? Look at verse 12 again. He was eating with the Gentiles, but he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Why? Why is it that Peter shrinks back? Why is it that he shrinks back? It's the fear of man. Peter shrinks back because 
as Ed Welch says, man has become big and God has become small. He's been shown by the Lord, just as we have as recorded in Scripture, that we are saved, Jew and Gentile, as Pastor Ken said last week, by Christ and Christ alone. Jesus has fulfilled these ceremonial laws. He's fulfilled the sacrificial system. Notice this in the Old Testament. What they were shown is that they were to live holy lives, but no matter how holy they lived, it wasn't good enough. They still needed sacrifice. They still needed, when they walked into that temple, to make sacrifice so that they could come into the presence of God. It's a great picture of the gospel that we can never be good enough, live righteously enough to earn God's favor. Only through Christ, who was the only pure, clean one, and who was the full, final sacrifice, can our sins be atoned for, and can we be made truly pure and clean to come into God's presence? That has happened in Christ Jesus. Peter has, has been made this, this has been shown clearly to him. He's preaching this gospel. And now, because of the fear of man, because others have come in, he has drawn back. And he's sinning against his brothers and sisters. When are you tempted to compromise your faith due to the fear of man? This often happens when our own tribal our identities are at stake. When our Christian convictions betray the values of family, politics, work relationships, and friend groups, we too are tempted to give way to the fear of man and to not speak the truth in love in those moments. We too are tempted to shrink back and, and to not be that prophetic voice that speaks the truth to power, that speaks the truth in love, no matter what it costs us. This is why our identity in Christ must be ultimate. And we be willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Christ. That, that, that our ultimate allegiance is to Christ. And when family when political, when work, when friend groups, when those other lesser affiliations come into conflict with God's truth, we must be willing to deny those things, take up our cross, follow Christ, and stand for truth. Brothers and sisters, this is real life. This, this is Peter who proclaims the glorious gospel not living in light of the gospel he proclaims. His words and his life do not match. He is speaking a glorious good news, but his life is illustrating the false gospels of the world. Peter's hypocrisy also caused others to stumble. Look at what it says there in the very next verse. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. See, we never sin in a vacuum, do we? Our sin always has an impact on others. 
This was Paul's concern in 1 Corinthians 5 with the man in immorality. You've got to address this church because others are going to be infected by this cancer. They're going to join in the sin. A little bit of leaven works its way through the whole lump is what he says. So Paul instructed the church to be the church to address this sin. Our sin always affects others. It always has an impact on others and it always begins to sway and rub off on others around us. I can remember two years ago, Pastor Kevin, one of our mission partners there in Waltham, Massachusetts, they were doing some community work, serving much like we'll be doing during our Serve 2020. And he sent me a picture of a sticker that was on a light post. And and there on that light post was a sticker that read, Are you ready for the rapture? Jesus is coming on October 28th, 1992. Now, at the time, the sticker was 26 years old. I'm assuming it's still there today, and it's nearly 28 years old. But I thought, when he sent me that picture, I thought, that's a great parable. Because the sticker had been there for that long. It was cracking. It actually looked somewhat like a mosaic. The the corners had torn off a little bit, but the message was still there. And I thought, bad theology is a lot like a bad sticker that you can't get rid of. That even when it peels up, it leaves that sticky residue and a bunch of dirt and junk sticks to it. And it sticks around for a long time. Brothers and sisters, our lives are like that. When we are out of line with God's word, it has an impact on others around us and it sticks around a long time if it's not quickly addressed and repented of and quickly corrected. Paul told Timothy, keep a close watch on your life, your living, and your doctrine. This was advice to Timothy, who was going to be a preacher of the gospel. This is great advice to all of us. Keep a close watch on your life, what, the way you live. Make sure it's in line with what you preach, and make sure that what you preach is right. Do you, do you see the weight to that? Now, let me, let me address this in, in, a, in a very specific way to our day and our culture. Then what I want you to know that you're like, well, I'm not going in the ministry. I don't need to worry about that. Just hold on a second. No matter who you are, you have influence and you're impacting people around you for either good or bad. And we live in a unique time where we have this thing called social media. And social media, unlike never before, has allowed us and given us the ability to build a platform and to publish ourselves, and to broadcast ourselves to lots of people. Are y'all following what I'm saying here? This is unique to our day and age. Brothers and sisters, we first must remember that Matthew 12, 36 tells us we will be held accountable for every careless word we speak. I've said a lot of careless words. But let's go one step further. To an extent, when we use our social media, we are actually teaching and instructing others. And I think we would do well to heed James 3.1 because I think there's valid application there. 
that teachers will be judged by stricter standard. We're putting ourselves out there. We're publishing ourselves. We're building a platform, and we're seeking to influence and instruct and teach others with our words. Brothers and sisters, we will be held accountable for this. Do not take lightly your social media presence because the Lord doesn't. But prayerfully consider your posts and your habits. Now I can say that because I'm not on Facebook, so I'm not directing that to anybody because I don't read Facebook. I just know the temptations. I had Twitter for years. I still have an account. There's nothing on it. I just I quit doing it. Personally, this is me personally. This is just my life. I'm not saying this is, Pastor, everybody get off social media. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. Okay, hear me out. But I figured out for me, this is just not beneficial. I remember John Brown, an old English pastor, and what he said to a younger pastor that was being ordained. He said, I know the vanity of your heart, and I know that you recognize that your congregation is small and that you wish that it was a larger congregation and that you had more people to preach to. But he said, I can assure you that on the day of judgment, you will think that you had enough. That's sobering. That's sobering to think about that we'll be accountable for our words and for our impact. Brothers and sisters, let's use the platforms that we have for God's glory. As you pray through, please hear me again. I'm not telling you don't do social media. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is let's use them for God's glory. Let's be wise in how we interact. And let's not speak careless words. And let's not cast our pearls before swine. Peter not only caused others to stumble, but the whole issue at heart is verse 14. Paul says that he confronted Peter and he says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. His conduct is out of line with the gospel. The word that's used here is where we get our word ortho from. Orthopedic, orthodontist, right? What are they doing? They're, they're, they're realigning a bone, an orthopedic, putting the bone back in line. What's the orthodontist doing? Aligning the teeth, lining them up correctly. Think about orthodoxy, right? Right belief, right worship, right. Think about orthopraxy, right practice, in line practice. So that's what's going on here. That's what Paul's addressing here. He, he's dealt with orthodoxy in chapter one. He's going to continue to deal with it. But here he's pointing out orthopraxy. He's saying, Peter, your practice is not in line with your proclamation, with your preaching. And he says, it's, it's not in line. So this was why he confronted him. This is why he confronted him. Now, now notice what he does. What he's telling him is this. He says, when I saw that their conduct was not in line with the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. And he rebukes him. If though a Jew, you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Jews to live like Gentiles? And, and what he's telling Peter here is he's saying, you are forgetting the gospel. Peter, you're forgetting the gospel. 
You're, you're not living in line with it. You're proclaiming it. He hasn't physically forgotten it, but he's saying you're forgetting it here. It's not hitting the heart and working out into the life. You are forgetting it. So Peter is out of line. And Paul's confrontation, Paul's conf- confronting of him is don't forget the gospel. Friends, here's what I want you to to recognize here. That our lives are not the gospel, right? They're they're not the gospel. We use language like live out the gospel. Our, Our lives are not the gospel, but our lives are to bear gospel fruit. The gospel is the root in our hearts and it should bear fruit in our lives. And what's going on here is that Paul is telling Peter, your life is not bearing fruit. It's not bearing the gospel fruit. You have forgotten it. And by way, Paul is telling us as well that this gospel should bear fruit in our lives. That Peter's life was out of line with the gospel. And, and then, brothers and sisters, we need to turn and ask ourselves, is there fruit in our life? Are we living in line with the gospel in every area of our life? Every area. In my singleness, in my, in my marriage, in my parenting, in, in, in my workplace, in the community, in In the church life, is it in line with the gospel? In my finances, so on and so forth. Is the gospel bearing fruit? Is Christ's lordship and supremacy, is his leadership, is his kingship evident and showing up in everything that I do? That every area of our life needs to be lined up. This requires, I think, really difficult hard work, doesn't it? The gospel fruit is a beautiful sight when this difficult hard work is happening, but it's extremely and incredibly beautiful in the corporate life of the church. Think about it. It's what the world longs for. Think about all the cries that we hear for unity, for peace, and, and, and for harmony, and so on and so forth. For shalom, to use a biblical word, is what they're crying out for. Think about those cries. Brothers and sisters, as, as we saw last week, as Pastor Ken laid forth, that, that's where we're going. That's where the gospel's taking us, is sure to deliver us there. And and the place where the world ought to see that the most and catch a glimpse of that the most is in the church, is in our life together as Christians in the church. That, That we know how to have those gracious conversations that we were talking about at the beginning. That we don't just talk at one another, we talk to one another, that we're patient with one another, that we're bearing with one another, that we're empathetic toward one another, that we're hearing from one another and pressing on and striving together, all because of the unity that we have in Christ and all because we know where our ultimate destination is and where we're going. It's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. Two weeks ago, I said there'll be no hand sanitizer in heaven. Friends, there'll be no political debates in heaven. 
There'll be no more campaigns or elections. There'll be no more social media. There'll be no more of these things. Notice what Paul does. He said, I said to Cephas before them all. Brothers and sisters, public sin gets public rebuke. Public sin gets public rebuke. See, see Paul knows that, that Peter's sin has led others astray. And that if this is not corrected, it's like that sticker that we were talking about that won't go away, that the residue just keeps sticking on to other things. And Peter knows this, I mean, Paul knows this must be corrected and, and everyone must be brought and rebuked by the truth and brought in line with the truth here. And so Paul's rebuke is public because Peter's sin is public. And then look at what he does next. He goes to the gospel there in verses 15 through 16. He says, We ourselves by birth are not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And Paul goes straight to the gospel and he says, we're, we're not justified by our works. What he's not getting at is that, that Peter, you're, you're no longer a Christian because your works, because now you're not saved. No, 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 what he's reminding him of is that we are saved by Christ and Christ alone. And not by our works, but once again, this justification root bears gospel fruit in our lives. So friend, maybe you're here listening this morning and you're saying, wow, so what I need to do is, is, is do a lot of good things to be a part of God's family. No, this sermon has been primarily addressed to Christians who already understand that we are brought into God's family only by saving grace and only by trusting in Christ alone. But as those who are brought into God's family, they have a new identity now. And so there's a family ethnic, there's a family uh, economy that we live by. We want to look like our dad. We want to look like our father in heaven, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. We want to be imitators of him. But the message of the gospel is not do these things and be accepted by God. The message of the gospel is you can only be accepted by God through and when you're adopted in the family, you're given a new identity and a new way of life. So don't misunderstand. This morning, if you don't know Christ, your greatest need is to recognize that you're a sinner and that just like the rest of us, that you're a part of the problem, that we all have sin and our sin is called separation from God and that sin separates us from one another and that in our sin that we're selfish and we seek our glory and we want to be the center of the universe and we want our mantra to be our kingdom come, our will be done. We recognize this and we recognize that the only hope that we have is Christ Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who stepped out of heaven not to be served but to serve and he lived a perfect life and he laid down that life as a ransom for any who would look to him in faith and repentance. 
We're not justified by our works. We're justified by faith is what Paul says here. And that's when we recognize our sinfulness and our need for a Savior and we trust Christ as the only true Savior. And when we do that, as we said, we're brought into a family and new life means a new way of living. Christian, for you and I, are we remembering the gospel? Even ourselves, we can get out of the line of the gospel, out of line with the gospel right here. We can think that we must be doing good to be justified before God. Even as those who recognize that justification is by faith alone, in our practice, we can fall into the error of thinking that we need to be justified by doing good things. No, brothers and sisters, we're bearing fruit out of this justification that we've received in Christ Jesus. We've been accepted already. We're not working for acceptance We have identity in Christ. We're not working to establish identity. Our efforts are empowered by his grace and they're intended for his glory, for his fame and for his renown. Kids, I know you've been patiently listening or trying to or napping and that fruit snacks ran out a long time ago, but let me just give you this sermon in two sentences. Right? Here we go. Our lives are to be in line with the gospel. Let me say it like this. Our lives should reflect the gospel that's at work within us. This gospel that saved us, our lives should reflect what God is doing inside of us. This, here's a simple sentence for you. This has bearing on how we treat others. This has bearing on how we treat others, even your brothers and sisters, even your mom and dad, even your neighborhood kids, even your schoolmates. This has bearing on how we treat others. Brothers and sisters in Christ, by way of conclusion, let's start where we ended. That the gospel most certainly has implications for the cultural conversation about racial, ethnic reconciliation and justice in our society. Could, could, could we be humble and search our hearts? Could we just confess? I named three big issues at the beginning. Biblical sexual ethics, marriage, abortion, and prejudice, racism. Can we just confess that we all, as those who have been, who are sinners and who have yet to be fully redeemed and still have indwelling sin, that, that as I heard Al Mohler say one day, anybody north of puberty struggles with some sort of sexual perversion. Can we just be honest this morning that, that we're not perfect in that? Can we just be honest and humble this morning and, and just say that, that we all do not receive God's gift on the abortion issue of children as we ought to? That there's oftentimes that, that we fall in the temptations of seeing children as impeding our own projects of, of self-actualization, realization, and our, and our own project of, of being great. That, there, that somehow they're an impediment to that. Or we fall off the other side of the horse and we, instead of seeing them as an impediment, we want to instrumentalize them and use them to fulfill ourselves and to make us look great for our glory. Can we, just, can we just admit that we wrestle with receiving God's gifts rightly of sexuality and of children? Can we just admit that we all struggle with prejudice to some extent? 
that anytime we've just generalized and classified a whole group of people, it may not be anything remotely based on skin color. It could be you hate all doctors because one doctor did you wrong or you don't like any attorney or you don't like all pastors because all pastors are just about one. That, that we struggle with classifying, generalizing, and being prejudiced toward others. That'd be a great place to start. To just be humble, ask God to search our hearts, show us where we're not in line with the gospel, and pray that as we preach the gospel to ourselves, that it bears more and more fruit in our lives for God's glory and for our good. The Baptist faith and message, as I said in the beginning, we are Southern Baptists. Article 15, Baptist Faith and Message 2000, the confessional document that Southern Baptists gather around and cooperate together based on this confessional document, says this in Article 15. All Christians are under the obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in our own lives in human society. Means and methods used for improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can truly and permanently uh, can truly only permanently be helpful, or only helpful only, sorry, when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. That means first and foremost, we'll seek the conversion of people to Christ and seeking to do good. All right. In the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism. It goes from there to list out sexual sins, greed, and others. You can go read the rest of the article. Every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. In order to promote these ends, Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause, always being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromise, compromising their loyalty to Christ and his truth. That's well said. I would encourage you to Read that and reflect on it more. That we not compromise the truth of the gospel, but that we be willing first to work toward the salvation of all and then work for the good of our city, bringing everything that we can in our personal lives, industry, government, society under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. Are we willing to press into these difficult conversations and face hard realities? Are we willing to press into the difficult conversation with our own heart dialogue to see where we're out of line with the gospel ourselves and ask God to show us, reveal it, and grant us by his grace repentance so that we will bear much fruit, gospel fruit, and that our lives would be in line with the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We ask that you would use it for your glory, for our good. Father, we pray that you would graciously, and we're so thankful for how gracious you are, that you would graciously point out to us where we are not in line with the gospel. It would be absolute pride and hubris for us to sit here and think, we got it all together, and that everything in our life is in line with the gospel. Remind us that we have not arrived until we arrive and see Christ face to face. Father, remind us that, that we need the gospel and that we're not earning anything. Father, we pray that you would reveal sin to us and quickly lead us to repentance. 
and that the gospel would bear much fruit in our lives. Father, we pray that corporately as a church that, that we would be a counterculture that is refreshing to the world as they look and see us. That they would get a glimpse, just a glimpse, of what heaven will be like. And that, that our life together would give credibility to this great message that we proclaim. Do this for your glory. We pray. In Christ's name, amen.